Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and occasionally we like to tell our listeners about podcasts we really like, and a podcast we really like is called The Endless Knot. It's hosted by Avin McMaster and Mark Sunderham. Mark is a medievalist and... Avin is a classicist, and on their podcast, they talk about all manner of things, medieval and classical, and occasionally other intellectual topics, which I think you'll find very interesting. And they're really entertaining hosts, let me say that. You can find The Endless Knot on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and other places where you find podcasts, or you can just go directly to their website, which is alliterative.net. That's A-L-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E dot net, and you can download episodes there. The episode you're about to listen to is from The Endless Knot, and I hope you find it entertaining. Thanks very much. Welcome to The Endless Knot Podcast. Where the more we know, the more we want to find out. Tracing serendipitous connections through our lives and across disciplines. Hi, I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. Today, we have an interview with Stephen Lay. But first, a little bit of quick follow-up. Our last episode was about cocktails, and we should have asked then, and we'll ask now, for you to share your stories of cocktails with us. We told you how we got interested in cocktails in the first place through our cocktail party, and I'd love to hear stories of how other people got interested in cocktails, if you are indeed interested in them. And tell us about your favorite cocktails or uh, a fun cocktail party you've been to. You can leave a comment on the website, or you can also tweet us at Avon Sarah. Or at Alliterative. Or go to the Facebook and leave a comment there. It'd be fun if we hear any great stories, we can share them with people next time. But now we'll get on to the interview with Stephen. Stephen Lay is an anthropologist who did his PhD in biological anthropology at UCLA, his master's in international relations at Johns Hopkins University, and his undergrad in mathematics at the University of Ottawa. He has a wide range of research interests, including the evolution of cooperation, the geography of trust, and human diet and health. He has recently published a book on the evolution of the human diet and its implications for health today, called 100 Million Years of Food. Stephen also went to school with me in Ottawa. All right. Uh, Welcome, Stephen. Um... So, first of all, let me ask you, where are you now and uh, what are you doing there? I am currently in northern Sweden in the city of Umeå, and I am a visiting professor here. I just got here uh, last week. That's very exciting. (laughs) Which department are you uh, attached to? Uh, Culture and Media Studies. Interesting. Okay. (laughs) That reflects very well your rather varied background in your education and what you've been working on, doesn't it? Yes. You keep moving. That's right. I was in the Department of Biology at the University of Ottawa and I'm in uh, Culture and Media Studies. Yep. It's ver- yeah, anthropology is a versatile uh, field, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the things, and we'll get to that, but that's one of the things that most uh, interested me about the book and clearly about what you've been doing for such a while, uh, how interconnected and interdisciplinary it is. You're clearly somebody who is interested in looking at things from a lot of different perspectives and you've both trained and sort of thought that way. And I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, that's right. It's, uh, it's, it's fascinating for sure. Yeah. And it's exciting that the book, I mean, it isn't just a nutrition book or just a, uh, an anthropology book or just a biology book. It, it includes all of these things together, which is, you know, in history and culture uh, and travel 
which is, I think, one of the things that, that makes it such an, engage, an engaging read. Yeah, there's a diverse uh, mix in there. Sometimes I worried that there was a little bit too much uh, in there, but this is a, <laughs> yeah, this is a learning process as well. I'm sure you've been doing a lot of uh, interviews and things, so you probably have this down to a fine art, but do you want to give us a capsule summary of sort of the purpose and the argument of the book, just so we can start with that? Sure. Um, the purpose of the book was to find out the relationship between food, lifestyle, and health. Mm-hmm. And um, the strategy was to look at the, the long view of the human diet, uh, going all the way back to uh, our insect-eating forebears up to the present, <laughs> and to see um, how each of the changes in diet affected our health. So that was the basic idea. Right. And then one of the things about your conclusion was that you are way more nuanced and sort of aware of the complexities of the issue than many diet books or many, not not that your book is a diet book, but that many of the approaches to what we should eat are. But nonetheless, you kind of boil it down to a few statements. What I took away from it, and correct me if I'm wrong, sort of as your very most essential points were, your advice would be, don't be inactive, walk a lot, and eat what your ancestors ate. Is that fair? <laughs> In a nutshell, yes. So... The first thing, as to come back to what we already said, was that one of the things we really like about it is how you argue from the beginning and and you make the argument through what you talk about that you have to always try to take as many perspectives as you can on this question because it takes so many disciplines to even ask a really simple question like, well, it's not a simple question, but is meat good for you or something like that. So. How important is it that we take a kind of holistic, and I mean that in a disciplinary sense, not maybe a traditional medicine sense, but a holistic approach to diet? And how do we improve that understanding? How do people talk to each other about it? Right. The The tendency in, in science is to specialize. And that's understandable mm-hmm. because you can't make progress without specialization, without focusing on a very specific issue and, and uh, analyzing it thoroughly. So this is why we understand... Let's say um, we learn more about the way the heart works. We learn more about uh, the way mm-hmm. the salt affects the body and, and, and so on. So people have to focus on, on very narrow questions. But then the problem is that we end up with this fragmented s- state of knowledge where people mm-hmm. are really aware of their own disciplines and they're, they're either ignorant or opposed to other viewpoints. And so I think that mm-hmm. the job of an anthropologist is useful in this regard because we can bring together all these diverse perspectives and try to um, see what the truth is behind all of them. And so do you think it's maybe, I mean, there's the potential danger, uh, as you say, for specialists to miss important insights uh, because they're so focused on their own research. Do you think a way around this problem is is perhaps more willingness among scientists uh, and others uh, in specialized fields to be willing to wander a little bit into other areas? Yeah, that would be great. The problem is that we humans have a tendency to, to uh, bunch up into cliques. And people in every field, they, they develop this kind of tribe, tribe mentality and they're very proud of their own work. They're, they worship their own leaders, and they denigrate others around them who don't, don't belong to their own tribe. So it's, I think, worthwhile for humans to en- to endeavor to be more open-minded. But it's our it's our innate tendency to be closed-minded. And so I think um, there's a role for people to to move in between the different fields and to specialize in in being non-specialists, if you will. Mm. 
I like that. I like that way of putting it. Mm -hmm. To not ask every specialist to also be a generalist, because that not only, as you say, is it not really in our nature, but it also kind of we, nobody has enough time for that. That's also right. People don't really have time to both be specialists and to be the kind of generalist you need. But sure. instead to have some people be specialized generalists. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> be bridge makers. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a fascinating approach. And I, I can see that you are practicing what you preach as best you can. <laughs> as best as I can, that's right. Making an income out of this is a, uh, out of being a is, a, is a different issue because there's no job out there for generalists, unfortunately. Well, exactly. That is a really complicated problem is how you reward, how do you incentivize and how do you reward that kind of generalizing? Yeah, because when, because, when you don't belong to any particular camp, you get rocks thrown at you from either side. <laughs> yeah. And and from the way that we have, you know, the, the basic structure we have set up, which is universities are departmental and can only really function or it's very hard to function for outside of those departmental boundaries. And then if you're going to hire somebody for a position in your department, you, of course, want the person who's the best specialist in that department, not somebody who isn't. And yet you lose out by thinking like that all the time. Yeah. And I think we can learn something from the corporate world in this case. So. Mm. I think um, modern successful entrepreneurial companies, they tend to try to break down these barriers and make the companies as horizontal as possible. Right. And they have to do that in order to make a profit. And in the academic world, there isn't that such an urgent, urgent need to become profitable or to be, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, to compete so uh, much in the market, as it were. So. I think that we'll eventually follow in the in the corporate way in, in this mm-hmm. regard. And I mean, when doesn't I don't anyway really want a university to be profit driven, of course. And I, I know that's not what you're arguing, but but at the same time, you need you do need urgency of some sort to drive that kind of change. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I know that's that's a, a problem that I've kind of run into having done a degree in a, a very interdisciplinary department and having you know done research and and a dissertation topic that really didn't fit into any specific department terribly well um it's hard to convince people of the value of that sort of work um when they're so focused on the disciplinary perspective mm-hmm. that's right yeah i um i worked on the topic of besides food i worked on the topic of societal trust and I recently sent out, inquired about a postdoc about on, working on trust to a, some department in the States. And a guy replied to me that, hey, we need, you're not from political science, so we can't hire you. Right. And so the idea there is you have to belong to the tribe in order to get accepted by them, which is understand. Yeah, and that you have to speak their specific language and work within their discipline. And in universities, of course, you have this double problem of having people do research in one field, but then they also have to teach. And when you're going to teach, you're going to teach within your discipline because you need somebody who teaches an introductory class and whatever uh, in your department. But at the same time, then that just fossilizes those rigid disciplinary boundaries because you only teach one discipline to your students. So it, it's self-replicating. Yeah, I mean... Um, I'm a visiting prof at the University of Ottawa, and the, one of the reasons I'm a visiting prof and not a real prof is that uh, there is no biological anthropology department at the <laughs> University of Ottawa. My, my discipline doesn't exist. Right. <laughs> and so I have to necessarily just float in between the boundaries. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
and be attached to multiple departments or yep. and the, the, and yeah we could get into of course the minutia of how uh, the administration works and doesn't work and all of that but perhaps we will I, I suspect we would all share <laughs> some views on that matter sure. but maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll leave that um, okay. for uh, another time but but yeah I, I do think that that's uh, an ongoing problem in trying to balance those competing needs for progress it's it's very hard it's hard for departments it ha- it's hard for universities it's hard for individuals and uh, it needs to be done but it's a difficult uh, balancing act yeah my wife is also always asking me like <laughs> so where are we going to move next <laughs> <laughs> yeah well exactly and it leads to i mean this is a whole other part the precariousness and the i mean it's adventurous and exciting and we'll get to your yes. your clear love of travel, travel yeah but <laughs> there's a difference between travel for the sake of travel and having to move before a new job those are very different things. <laughs> that's, that's right. So speaking of travel, then, I mean, you tell a lot of really fun stories about traveling and exploring different regional and traditional cuisines. Did the travel come first or the idea for the book or, you know, did they just sort of go hand in hand together? Specifically for this book, the idea came first. The, the, the the idea was pretty urgent in some ways, and I had to. My uh, mother passed away from breast cancer, and mm-hmm. so I had to get to the bottom of this, this question of what were the risk factors behind breast and prostate cancer, which run to my family. So the idea here clearly came first, and then because anthropologists tend to mistrust theories <laughs> and data. So as in my own discipline, I was taught that we always have to go out into the field and verify what we're learning in books. Mm. And so, okay, so I read about the nutritional theories and nutritional science, and then I decided I had to go out and uh, see for myself how people were living and eating and see if this would either confirm the theories or disconfirm. You do give a lot of different uh, anecdotes in the book, but where were the main places you went to specifically for this? Yeah, I wrote um, about half the book in China. Mm -hmm. And my circumstance there was that um, I needed a place to write the book I needed a roof over my head, I needed food on the table, and I needed time to write the book. Mm-hmm. And so all of those things came together. I had three, poss- three choices to, to carry out my, my book writing. I could do, do it either in northern Iraq, in Turkey, or in China. Hmm. Um, this is places where I found a job right. uh, teaching English. And so um, in northern Iraq, I found out that the troops were massing on the border. And so I, I, <laughs> I actually signed the contract, and then I backed out. Right. And then in Turkey, they told me I would have to work weekend so that left me with no time to write and so i ended up in china Hmm. and then you've got stories of obviously you had family connections in vietnam that's right and uh then you've visited uh sounds like fair number of other places just basically on trips for information gathering yeah that's right so i had all this sort of information in from from scientific papers but it was another thing to actually go to these places and to Mm -hmm. talk to people and, and try the foods for myself and then uh learn about people's opinions uh, on, on food and nutrition. And that was really uh, enlightening. One of the things that another thing that I really liked about the way you approach things in the book, and something that I hadn't thought specifically about before, is your uh, attempt to or to raise the definition of what healthy is and what healthy eating is. And I think that's probably one of the things I really most took away from it, that there's no single definition of health. We always talk about eating a healthy diet and being healthy. And as you quite rightly point out, health is different for every individual. And in fact, over the lifetime of an individual, what counts as health and what we're aiming for and what we want out of our bodies, essentially, changes. 
and therefore what a healthy diet is, is not the same for every person or at every stage of their life. Do you want to maybe explain that a little bit and how, how that has affected the way you think about eating? Yeah. In the 19, starting around the 1970s, there was this debate that opened up in um, biology and in medicine. And the debate was that evolutionary biologists complained that medicine was uh, more or less ignorant of evolution. And mm-hmm. so the idea of, of medicine was you could treat a person or, or an organism like, uh, like a car. Right. And in some ways, the car had to write, run properly, and once in a while, the car would break down, and so you had to figure out how to fix it, basically. Mm-hmm. But the evolutionary biologists pointed out this, that, that this was the wrong way of thinking about health. And that they said that you'll, biology only makes sense in, with, in the light of evolution. That's a, a famous quote from a, a Russian biologist. Mm-hmm. And so what the evolutionists wanted was to re-examine the, the, the notion of health and medicine and to think about why organisms are designed in, in particular kinds of ways. And so, for example, the, uh, one of the classic examples in this debate between evolution and, and medicine was the use of aspirin to relieve fevers. So this was, right. used to be a common practice, right. but it was pointed out by the evolutionary biologists that fever is actually there for a reason. It's mm-hmm. there for an organism to elevate, elevate its temperature in order to combat infections. And so by reducing the fever, you actually end up prolonging the infection. And so sometimes you just have to sit back and let evolution do its work, or let fevers, in this case, do their job. So um, there has been a sort of reappraisal of medicine in the light of evolution in the last uh, couple of decades. That also makes me think that, in a sense, what you've got there then is a complex system embedded in another complex system and and so trying to reduce it down to you know a single simple um, cause and effect sim- simple yeah. cause and effect is going to be problematic yeah that's right because if you don't know if you try to treat the symptoms only without a, a longer or, or bigger viewpoint of the uh, uh, how the organism evolved then you can sort of make missteps Uh, So, yeah, it's important to look at the overall perspective of what the organism is actually designed to do and how how to live. When you start talking about thinking about the body in evolutionary terms and about human life, it also raises the question of what the interaction is between the individual and the population when you talk about evolution. Because you you talk about uh, in the book of you know how how the bodies uh, how our bodies have been adapted by the pressures of evolution to be able to deal with certain nutrients or not deal with certain nutrients or, or you know all the the complex things you discuss and how on the other side of it we aren't necessarily designed to be what we might consider perfectly healthy through our entire life what we are designed to be is a population that is healthy and carries forward from generation to generation. There is no, there's no necessary pressure, for instance, on us being pain-free into our 80s. That isn't a thing that our body, that, that evolutionary pressure necessarily selects for. It selects for us to be able to reproduce and then to take care of our children and then to maybe be a second generation that helps to take care of the children, but not necessarily to be what we would consider ideally healthy into old age. And so there's this kind of comp, uh, competing pressure on us to as a population versus on what each individual might consider their ideal life. Yeah, it was um, 
Richard Dawkins, Mm -hmm. who made it clear to the public that really what evolution is trying to do is to pass on genes. And so the the proper point of view of uh, analyzing biology is from the genes point of view. Mm -hmm. And from from that perspective, humans or any other organism are just vehicles Mm -hmm. for those genes to get passed on into the next generation. And so in that way, genes can be pretty ruthless. They don't really care Mm -hmm. what happens to the vehicle. They just want to get on into the next generation. And so in terms of longevity, for example, mm-hmm. um, genes don't necessarily care if the organism lives a long life or a short life. The gene wants to maximize its probability of getting into the next generation. And so in the case of bacteria, they mm-hmm. have extremely short lifespans, right? Mm-hmm. And elephants have very, very long lifespans. So which organism is more successful? In some ways, you could say the bacteria are actually more successful because there are a lot more bacteria in this world than there are elephants. Mm-hmm. And at least in terms of numbers and in terms of mass, in terms of biomass, there's far, mm-hmm. far more of this world, life uh, organisms in this world that are composed of bacteria than uh, that, are, that are comprised of elephants. Or any and mammal so, at all, yeah. <laughs> that's right. So, the, so, so longevity is not necessarily the, the key point of, of mm-hmm. evolution. And so organisms, when we end up dying sooner, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that evolution has failed in its task. Mm-hmm. It just means that um, evolution has responded to our diet in such a way that will make us die sooner, but will allow us to pass on our genes more successfully. Has mm-hmm. made a trade-off between health at the childbearing years, say, That's right. and That's right. uh, longevity. Mm-hmm. That's right. Now, you, I want to talk a bit about timelines. Uh, you, you give the sort of round number of, you know, think 500 years back in terms of what what constitutes a traditional diet. Is that just sort of a, a convenient round number or is there something, I mean, I, I guess you're aiming for something pre-industrialized so as not to have processed food, but is there any, uh, are there any other historical uh, reasons for picking one kind of date over another in terms of how we think about uh, traditional diets? Yeah, actually I chose the, the 500 years because it combines two dates. The first is the rise of industrialization. So that would be about 300 years ago. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the rise of globalization, the trade of mm-hmm. foods over long distances. Mm-hmm. And that happened around 500 years ago. So you can wrap both of those up in the in the convenient 500-year date. Plus 500 years is just easier to remember. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah, because getting back to our point about generalized versus specific knowledge, both Mark and I have, you know, strong historical backgrounds. That's one of the ways in which we tend to think of things from a sort of history discipline. And so as I was reading, that was the kind of questions that came up for me about when we talk about going back to our, what, what our ancestors ate. There's a lot of historical information that I think, uh, you, you know, you've clearly thought about, but that, that that's a discipline that's important to what you're trying to do too. So 500 years, where do we draw that line? You know, would, would looking a thousand years back be too far in terms of this? Because if I think about my ancestors, okay, so we have to think about our own ancestors. I'm British Isles mutt. So if I look back to what my presumed gene pool was eating 400 years ago, as you make the point that's just after globalization, uh, for instance, potatoes feature heavily in the Irish part of my ancestors' diet, let's say. Right. But 500 years ago, they don't at all. Right. There are no potatoes. Right. 500 years before that, I'm talking, we're talking Normans or Anglo-Saxons. Right. 500, 500 years before that, I'm talking Romans. And 500 years before that, we're talking prehistory Celts. 
each of those populations is eating really quite, I mean, when I say quite different, not drastically different, not as different as if we lived in Polynesia or something, but, but there's some fairly important changes to the staples and also to the spicing and the flavoring and proportions of, of food that have been eaten. But how does that factor into how you think about these questions? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up this point. Actually, this morning, uh, I just talked to some lady, some professor at this university, and she, I guess she was Swedish background, and she said she had just bought my book and she asked me if the main point of the book was to eat like her ancestors. I said, yes. And she sort of shrugged and uh, as if to say that's not how she wanted to eat. Mm-hmm. And I also talked to a, a Croatian lady who said she wasn't interested in Croatian food. Mm-hmm. I talked to a Greek guy who said he didn't like Greek food and so on. So I think that's all fine. There's nothing, I don't think the, the takeaway point should be that you have to eat exactly what your particular ancestors ate. Mm-hmm. The humans are, are, are highly omnivorous creatures. They're really good at eating a lot of different kinds of foods, like mm-hmm. raccoons and bears and dogs. <laughs> so um, there's nothing that says that you have to eat what your ancestors, your particular ancestors mm-hmm. ate. It makes general good general sense. For example, let's say if I'm from Asia and I, I lack the genes to break down lactose, mm-hmm then it makes kind of sense to stay away from diets that are heavily dependent on uh, dairy. Mm-hmm. Or let's say I'm, I'm from northern Canada, I have, I'm an Inuit, mm-hmm. and I lack the genes to either process high amounts of calcium or large amounts of sugar. Mm-hmm. So in that case, it makes sense to stay within that particular general area. Right. But beyond that, I think um, a lot of people are able to eat a lot of different kinds of foods. And so I think mm-hmm. eating what your ancestors ate makes a lot of sense if you're living in that area mm-hmm. and those kind of plants and animals are available within that area. So that it makes good environmental sense. Mm-hmm. Foods that are have a long history tend to taste good because people have figured out how to make the cuisine so that it's... Uh, uh, appealing to, to eaters. And they've, they've balanced those nutrients and so that they're nutritionally uh, sufficient. Mm-hmm. So I think it makes general good sense. But beyond that, there's nothing sort of dogmatic about it. Yeah. And you can go ahead and pick and choose from whatever regional cuisine you you want. And I think people will, will continue to do that. And there's nothing really wrong with that from the general point of view of health. Mm-hmm. Except when you are, you can trace your ancestry to a very specific region and then you try to some, use some food that's completely different from that region. That's when you're going to run into trouble. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, I think it's fine. I just uh, mix and match. Yeah. So when I, when I say, oh, well, you know, nobody was eating potatoes before 500 years ago, but, we, but my ancestors were eating high starch diets and have been sure. eating high starch diets for 2000 years. That's sure. whether the di- starches have changed. Sure. But that is definitely a feature of Northern Europe. So that more generalized part is probably... Probably not necessarily a problem. Yeah, and let me give another example. So, uh, corn mm-hmm. was imported into uh, Europe, and for the first uh, couple of hundred years after corn was imported, people were in misery yeah. from eating corn. And the reason is because they hadn't figured out how to use corn properly in their diet. The uh, North American Indians knew that there were techniques that you had to use in order to process that corn properly so you wouldn't end up with uh, pellagra, mm-hmm. this uh, vitamin B deficiency disease. Right. So, poor Europeans were exposed to corn relied on it heavily and ended up terrible afflictions that killed thousands and thousands of people. Mm-hmm. And so eventually they figured out how to, how to eat it properly. And, you know, things like this may are less likely to happen today because we have more nutritional knowledge. But mm-hmm. um, this is the, the potential danger anyway. It's interesting. This raises a sort of specific question, or I guess you sort of answered a specific question that was kind of concerning me is, you know, what do you do when you're of mixed ancestry? You know, this is important for me. I have, you know, my mother is French Canadian. My father is from India. uh, And those are very different 
populations. Of, <laughs> very different kinds of foods. Mm -hmm. But if if you take the sort of, as you say, mix and match approach for the most part, that solves a potential problem for me. Yeah. And I think there is this new field of nutritional genetics. And what they want to do in this field is to find out a person's exact genotype and then mm. tell them exactly which kinds of foods they should avoid eating because of whatever interaction with their genes. This will be a, can be applicable for people who have of, uh, are from mixed backgrounds and mixed genetic ancestry. Mm -hmm. um, apart from that, yeah, just general common sense would be to just uh, mix different kinds of foods and to be aware of the potential problems of having a mixed uh, background. Mm -hmm. Well, for instance, for you, Mark, you, you, you're aware that you've got genetic predispositions towards problems with diabetes, diabetes yeah. and, and that's from your father's from side. Indian background, it's, yeah. it's a high, high chance of diabetes. Mm -hmm. Probably because of the interaction between genetic type and modern eating habits. I mean, that almost certainly is a big part of it, mm -hmm. that food has changed faster than bodies. Right. In a way, this is sort of one of the central questions that I, I kept coming back to that I just found really fascinating because when you talk about people finding the balance of uh, how to make their staple foods taste good, for instance, well, there's a balance there. They find a way to make their staple foods taste good or they find a way to make what they think tastes good match their staple food. Uh, I think they're of uh, British cuisine and its famed blandness. But Brits traditionally did not find their food bland. They found other food unacceptably <laughs> strong. Right? They didn't like garlic. They didn't like onions. They didn't like spices. Then they got their hands on India and discovered a sudden love for spices, but, but only in certain contexts and only in certain ways. And I think that makes sense. And of course, that's how any population is going to adapt. But it is uh, one of those problems we have now. I mean, I look back, I love certain kinds of traditional British food, but I also find other kinds of traditional British food highly unappetizing and unappealing. And I'm only looking back to, say, the Victorian period, when things had already moved forward. You know, when what we think of as British food is uh, traditional British food goes back no further, most of it, to the Victorian period. When I go further back, the other thing that immediately comes to mind is class, the issue of, of what class of an, our ancestors were thinking about and how class plays into it. Because, you know, what the peasants ate 500 years ago or what the lords were eating 500 years ago were very different. And I think it's an open question, and maybe you have an opinion on this, as to which would be more likely to be more healthy. And it may differ very much from region to region in terms of, you know, the, the, the poorer classes are very restricted usually in their diet and their choices. But that may or may not necessarily mean that they're less healthy than the upper classes who have access to luxurious foods that may or may not be good for them. Right. So it, it depends on the uh, specific class, the specific mm -hmm. part of the world and the specific food that we're mm -hmm. talking about. Yeah. So in, in terms of concrete examples, this uh, the disease of beriberi, mm -hmm. vitamin B deficiency from eating polished, highly polished right. rice, right. white mm -hmm. rice, mm -hmm. this afflicted the upper classes. Mm -hmm. The reason was because the upper classes had the access to highly processed white rice. Right. And so they, they were actually disadvantaged mm -hmm. in this way. Mm -hmm. And the, the lower classes had to make do with more like rice that was brown rice. Mm -hmm. And they ended up with having the vitamin embedded within the husk of the rice. So in the case of pellagra, it was the opposite. It was the poorer classes who were afflicted because they only had access to uh, milled corn. Right. And they didn't have a, a broader diet. And so sometimes, yeah, another example would be gout. Mm -hmm. And so gout was known as the, uh, the rich, the rich uh, person's disease. Yeah. Rich man's uh, disease, really, yeah. That's right, yeah. Because <laughs> they would have so, the access to, to foods that would exacerbate the problem. Mm -hmm. Like seafood and alcohol, yeah. 
Right. And what about, uh, I was wondering what role epigenetics plays in this, because there was a study a little while back that, um, you know, made the claim that obesity in the southern U.S. was a result of something as far back as post-Civil War diets there, or I think similarly, was it the Netherlands? Yeah, Food shortage post-World War II that the effects of long-term starvation level diets, which were post, yeah, post-World post War II and then post-Civil mm-hmm. War privations in one population led to changes in the genetic expression of the children of those people and even their grandchildren and maybe Several even their great-grandchildren yeah. great-grandchildren that they expressed their genes differently and this led to uh, increased obesity in their descendants. Which is a faster effect than normally we we're thinking about in terms of evolutionary well and it's change, not and it's not really evolutionary change in the no, same way it's about no. it's not about changing the my understanding of epigenetics and I am sure, Stephen, you know better, but is that it's not uh, changing what genes you have, but how those genes are expressed in the short term. Yeah, that's right. This is a a really hot new field, Mm -hmm. and we're going to learn a lot more about this in the uh, upcoming decades. But um, yeah, so far, we don't really know much about the uh, epigenetic effects of of changes of diet. Another really uh, fascinating and rapidly developing field concerns the uh, intestinal flora, Uh, the bacteria that live in the stomachs. And these, again can change rap- very rapidly within with, within a generation. Mm-hmm. And so if it works faster than, than uh, evolutionary change, and this can also affect the way that people are able to process foods. Mm-hmm. And the papers are just flying out in this uh, area. So, yeah. And they're already we'll talking about best. treatments that take that into account, fecal transplant and probiotic foods and, and all these sorts of things that are designed to change your gut bacteria to uh, resolve whatever particular problem you might be having. Yeah. Definitely exciting stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, one last sort of history-related question, and then I think Mark, um, I know Mark has a, uh, <laughs> he, he was making a lot of notes as he read. Uh, he has some very specific questions about things that just piqued his interest. You know, I talked about different periods of history and about class, and then the last thing I thought was interesting is to think about the way that cultural and ideological fo- and religious and external forces have had effect on what we eat. So when we look at the modern world, we tend to, at least in the first world and in richer populations, we have unlimited choice, essentially. We're not very much limited by what we have around us. We can eat whatever we want, but we make choices based, and we we are very aware that we're making choices based on uh, things like what's a prestige food or what's not a prestige food or what's convenient or what's considered fatty or what we have been influenced to buy because of advertising or whatever. Well, when we look back into history, there is, I think, sometimes a tendency from some people to sort of think that people just ate what they ate because that was what was around and what made them healthy and what was possible, as if it were more a survival thing and less culturally influenced. But we can look back as far as our records go and see that people were making choices about what to eat based on not only what was around them, but on seemingly fairly irrational cultural imperatives too like upper classes in Rome eating the most luxurious items just as a show of prestige so that they were eating not things that were grown in Rome as a regular basis, but the most exotic animals they possibly could just because that showed how rich they were, or people eating according to religious rules, or making decisions about who were fed, like women not being able to eat as being fed as much food or getting only the dregs of a meal because of cultural views about their status within a family or something like that. Do you think those forces have been strong enough to influence what people eat enough that it can make some of these older diets problematic? Or do you think that those forces are smoothed out in in the long run? 
I, I think you raise a really good point that the foods that we that we choose to some degree are affected by our psychology, particularly our, our group psychology mm-hmm. and, and our concerns about reputation and status. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the studies, the rigorous studies on alcohol mm-hmm. show that wine, beer and spirits are all equally protective of, of heart disease. Right. Mm. But there's a, there's a snob appeal that goes with wine. Mm-hmm. And you, so you, you drink wine out of very delicate glass. There's all, you know, you can, you can take a course on how to buy glasses <laughs> for wine, right? <laughs> and then there's this whole vocabulary that's mm-hmm. associated with wine that's really arcane to uh, the uninitiated. Mm-hmm. And of course, wine has all these reputed uh, effects associated with it. But really, when it comes down to it, it's really about alcohol. And alcohol is prevalent in wine and beer and, and uh, vodka, yes. And, <laughs> and spirits, right? Yeah, for, for a time, uh, the internal organs of cattle and, and pigs went out of style, but uh, now they're, they're coming back into vogue. Mm-hmm. Um, they were regarded as underclass food, and now they're coming back as well. And uh, white rice has gone through the same kind of thing. Brown rice was disdained mm-hmm. as being poor people's food. But now it's being uh, coming back. So yeah, it's more expensive in the grocery store than white rice, <laughs> which never ceases to amaze me. But it it's true. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm just waiting for someone to make insects into a prestigious food. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we need, exactly. we need somebody. We need some actress out or somebody, somebody with really high status. Gwyneth to, Paltrow, to you have to get Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> on your side. She's the one who leads these things. If she would make recipes for insect smoothies, you would have it sewn up (laughs) it's a tough job but yeah it can be done i think well and the funny thing about that is that you know we're more accepting of marine crustaceans i mean conceptually there's not a whole lot of difference between eating a shrimp or eating a cricket i don't know from personal experience if there is culinary distinction do they have to be cooked differently you know is the flavor profile radically different but you know if we're willing to eat something that you know looks like a lobster or a shrimp or uh, i mean some of the some of the marine crustaceans they actually call bugs in australia there's a whole class a whole of class things of that are lobster like called bugs uh, in the bu- in recipe books we yeah. have <laughs> well, why do you think that distinction exists in, in the mind's popular, you know, in the sort of popular conception about eating insects versus eating marine crustaceans. One of the issues is that humans are highly suspicious of novel foods. Mm-hmm. And this makes sense because if we, in our ancestry, in our ancestral past, if we had just been very promiscuous in our eating habits, we would have died very quickly. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of things we can't eat. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And so we, are, we stick to the foods that are, are most familiar to us. Mm-hmm. So beyond that, though, we also tend to stick to foods that successful groups of people eat. Mm-hmm. And to give you an example, so in China, there's a huge push now to drink milk. And the reason is because they want to become white and tall. <laughs> and as successful financially and culturally as, as Europeans. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to adopt, let's say, African foods anytime soon, right? So, mm-hmm. and that, that comes partly down to economics and status. Mm-hmm. So another example is in Vietnam, people uh, eat snails. Mm-hmm. And oh. it's, there's, you can buy snail soup. And people in Vietnam these days disdain insects. So th- one of the main reasons is because the French yes. came to Vietnam. And the French liked to eat escargot and they didn't like eating insects. And so they picked up on these kind of foods. The Thais, on the other hand, never had the French or the British come to colonize them. And so they, and they still leave their snails in their ponds. <laughs> so right. two countries that are very close to each other, very similar culturally and in terms of their environment, but they have uh, pretty different views on eating uh, insects and snails. 
and uh, the same was true in in a sense in um, in the U.S. Lobster used to be considered poor man's food. It was sort mm -hmm, of a, right. a junk animal, and you know, along the uh, the eastern seaboard, it was fed to the lower classes. But as soon as it, you know, as soon as they they built railroads and and were able to transport it into the interior of the continent, it suddenly became a delicacy because it was scarce. Because it was scarce. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, chicken wings yeah. were also brought into brought into the states by by Chinese. Uh, they were formerly thrown out, but now they're a delicacy. Tuna mm -hmm. was formerly garbage food, but now, of course, it's high-priced sushi, mm -hmm. uh, thanks to the Japanese. Mm -hmm. And uh, a really interesting example is uh, in Greenland, when um, the Norse there uh, refused to eat fish, mm -hmm. and uh, they actually end up uh, starving. Their entire colony starved mm -hmm. to death because they wouldn't eat fish around them. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, that parallels, you know, my particular area of specialty is the ancient world. I'm a classicist. And that parallels one of the things you talk about the Mediterranean diet, of course, as being one of the well-known traditional diets that is highly touted for its health-giving benefits, at least for those for whom it's appropriate. And it's interesting, we've been recently doing some cooking of from old recipe books that we've got medieval cookbooks and classical world cookbooks. And when you go back to Roman foods, they don't taste anything like Mediterranean foods now. And in fact, even the basic staples are quite surprisingly different. There is olive oil, but in much smaller quantities than they use now. It was very expensive and highly prized, and they used it mostly for fuel and personal grooming and only a little bit for cooking. And uh, their staple, staples were in Rome were, were lentils and pulses with barley, a widely used but disparaged grain, and uh, certain kinds of wheat as a basic grain. And they everything was flavored with, uh, you talk about in your book, garum, that's equivalent to fish sauce. So everything's flavored with fish sauce and sh everything's sweet and sour, basically. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of uh, vinegar and wine vinegar used and balanced with a lot of honey and grape juice to sweeten it and then with this highly salty fish sauce and the main flavorings that are in almost every dish that we make from the Roman world that we have recipes for, which of course we only have recipes for high status stuff, but still, is got cumin and coriander in it and generally um, asafoetida powder is what we use now that makes up for uh, silphium, which is a, a something that they used and loved, but uh, used so much that they actually made it go extinct around the first century AD. And so it doesn't exist anymore. And that combination of flavors would be completely bizarre, I think, to any Italian now. It, it, mm -hmm. it, it really does not, you know, obviously they didn't have some of the staples of Italian food. They didn't have tomatoes. They didn't have pasta. But even more, just the, like the, the balance of flavors and the kinds of, it, it's much more similar to, in fact, what we think of with Thai food with that uh, careful balancing mm. of the sweet and sour, except without the hot, they don't have the spicy flavorings, of course. So, you know, when we think of a Mediterranean diet, it doesn't, and they didn't eat a lot of seafood. They did eat some, but not very much. And for the Greeks and the Romans, again, seafood was low status, and you would only eat it if you had to. You look at the Homeric epics, and not a single person in all of Homer eats a fish. And in fact, in very much the same way you're talking about the Greenlanders, at one point Odysseus and his uh, men are trapped on an island, and they are starving, and they end up slaughtering the cat. I know this is a poem, but bear with me. Um, <laughs> they end up slaughtering the cattle of the sun, which they've forbidden to slaughter because they even say, if we don't eat these cows, we're going to have to fish. 
and we'd rather die. <laughs> we'd rather die. They are heroes. They would ra- so they they slaughter the cattle of the sun. They are punished by being killed by uh, it's a curse. You know the gods are mad at them, but they are that unwilling to eat fish. And this is in this is the Greeks who are you know the best sailors in the Mediterranean at the time and all the rest of it, and that's what I mean by the ideological pressures that are against people doing what's in their best interests. <laughs> you can see that right there at the very beginning of Western literature. Yeah. So the 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 psychology of disgust mm-hmm. is pretty interesting too. And in some ways, foods are help to delineate groups, cultural mm-hmm. groups. Mm-hmm. And so um, growing up in Ottawa, English-speaking kids disparaged French kids for eating uh, frogs. Yeah, yeah. Right? Even and, though almost um, none of them probably actually did. <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, I, mean, I grew up at the same time in Ottawa, and I, I don't think any of our French-speaking friends were eating frog legs very often. Right. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, frogs taste, frogs taste great. And, mm-hmm. yeah, and um, religious groups are also very can be yeah. sensitive about differences in, in foods because they help to define who they are as, as groups and to uh, help to exclude others for their uh, dietary habits. So group psychology also plays a role too. Yeah, for sure. And uh, this reminds me of the a sort of kind of big picture question in terms of scarcity and abundance. You know, what food what foods are scarce, what foods are abundant. You know, what is the role of a kind of economy of scarcity play in our dietary choices, and does it need to be? I mean, are we driven to eat foods because they're scarce, or or are we forced to eat foods that are abundant just because they're abundant? And going forward, what are the the sort of challenges or what are the, the the possible ways that we can we can kind of overcome these these issues of scarcity and abundance yeah that's a good point mark yeah i think about truffles <laughs> if truffles were a lot more common uh, would they be so highly regarded mm-hmm. command such high prices i wonder about that and tuna the same thing nowadays uh, or the really ex- expensive sushi fish yeah they're expensive partly because they're so hard to get these days and that's going to drive up the prices and, and the uh, the snob appeal of those kinds of foods, so that's that's unfortunate in the case of uh, seafood, particularly. Yeah. So yeah, that's a I, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, there is an unfortunate possibility of really destructive feedback loops here as certain foods get more and more scarce because of our overuse of them and environmental degradation and those sorts of things. If they then become higher prestige and more expensive, then the pressures on them become higher. I mean, that has that has happened and does happen with seafood, as you say, with tuna and whale meat even and some other kinds of delicacies that the more difficult they are to get, the more pressure there is to get them, and therefore the more endangered they become. Yeah, you know, ants ants are everywhere around. <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a there's an infinite supply of ants, I'm sure, but <laughs> but nobody touches them, right? Yeah. Well, They're, and that very ubiquity, that very ubiquity is probably a, a strike against them, right? Yeah. Things that are everywhere. You know, nobody wants to eat the potatoes because everybody has potatoes. That's right. How do you prove that you're being careful and thoughtful about what to eat and are following all the latest guidelines and being healthy if you just eat what everyone else is eating? Right. If, um, if you don't distinguish yourself by your food choices. Which is why I like yes. that that really nice example of the, the pay-what-you-can restaurant where everyone eats the same thing. Right. In Australia, yeah. In Australia, that you, that you and I thought up. that was a really, a really nice example of what, what can be done. Mm-hmm. Yes, when my cousins came from Vietnam to uh, Canada, they they gorged on cherries, mm. and I asked them why, and they said, "Well, it's because cherries are really expensive in Hanoi, so we have to eat a lot of them here <laughs> <laughs> for no other reason." Like, I mean, cherries are fine; they're they taste as good as peaches, let's say, but they had to eat the cherries because the cherries are expensive mm. in right. their homeland. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Now you talk about how certain religious dietary rules have health benefits. Do you think they might have been inspired by those health benefits or just sort of side effects or coincidental is, you know, having, for instance, periods of fasting being sort of biologically beneficial. Do you think religion could have been inspired or have been a way of encoding a healthy practice or something? Yeah, there's a, so there's two questions here uh, that we can look at. One is the the issue of fasting. Then the other issue is the issue of uh, religious taboos right. against certain kinds of foods. So um, the injunctions against food. You, know, I, you guys are the historians. Uh, <laughs> there's a <laughs> this is a complex topic. Mm-hmm. I only know about the uh, nutritional aspect of, of fasting, and which is to say that it doesn't kill you. Yeah. Uh, immediately, anyways, and so uh, it, people could get away with imposing these kinds of rules. A lot of an enormous amount of restrictions on Greek Orthodox. Mm-hmm. They didn't have any health problems. Did they have any health benefits is another question. And it's, it's still not clear whether there actually is, is any uh, real improvement in health from religious fasting, but at least they weren't suffering mm-hmm. greatly mm-hmm. from it. And the uh, the issue of food taboos is a little bit, uh, is also very complex. Mm-hmm. And there's been this long-standing debate about, uh, for example, why is it that uh, cows are sacred in, in India? And so um, anthropologists have gone back and forth about this for, <laughs> for, for generations, and uh, still it's unresolved. The, I think the key point is, though, is that uh, once any particular food is restricted for whatever reason, then it immediately becomes part of the culture, becomes part of the psychology, and uh, right. people avoid it. And uh, they'll do so very strongly. Mm-hmm. And I think at the basis of that is this idea that we stick to the foods that are familiar. So once one generation right. of children is exposed to the idea that they have to avoid uh, cows, then they'll do so. And I remember now um, when I was sitting in a restaurant with a friend of mine from India, and we went to a Korean restaurant, and he really enjoyed the food. Until we came home, and then um, it was pointed out to him that there were little fish in the kimchi mm. that he ate. And his face changed, and he became really upset about it. You know, he had never consciously eaten animal foods before in his life, oh. as far as I know. So he was really upset about it. But before that, he enjoyed the, the meal. Yeah. So um, there was some psychology going on there. Yeah, I remember your your dad telling the story about your mom, Mark. So Mark's uh, parents and grandparents were were uh, Hindu and and Brahmin and and vegetarian. Your grandfather used to feed your father eggs, his children eggs, right. as a they would go swimming and he would make them drink an, a, a whole raw egg in the morning before. <laughs> before they went swimming. Uh, we don't need to get into <laughs> details of why he did that. But anyway, he thought it was good for them. And Mark's grandmother would didn't like it at all. And so they'd actually do it outside the house. They'd leave the house and go and get their eggs in the morning because she felt very strongly that this was wrong. And not just because it was religiously wrong, but because she'd sort of internalized it to that it was wrong to deprive life. Until someone explained to her that chicken eggs that were sold at the stores had not been fertilized and would never have hatched. And once she found that out, she was fine. And yeah. I think your mom, your, your dad said that she start, she would even eat, she became quite fond of eggs oh, and yeah. would eat eggs quite happily and was perfectly happy for the kids to have it. Now, I, I, I'm not saying there's anything stupid about that because if you're opposed ethically to taking life, then being told that it's not life changes the deal radically. But it shows, uh, it, it gives you that perspective on the food was taboo for a very specific reason. And once it wasn't taboo, it was totally yummy. <laughs> so Yeah. And another thing that I've realized from this book is that, uh, for example, Western anthropologists going to India were really fascinated about why it is that cows were not eaten. Mm-hmm. And going into other parts of Asia, they were fascinated about why dogs were eaten. Mm-hmm. Right. But 
you know, if anthropologists had gone the other way around, if they had gone from Asia to North America or mm -hmm. Western countries, they would have said, why do people not eat their dogs? You know, like, yeah. why are they putting them on pedestals and, and, and treating them so well when dogs are really good food, mm -hmm. right? So, and, and people coming from India might have said, why are you all eating all these cows? Sure. And why are you raising all these cows and taking all this land for them when, you know, all, all you need is a few to pull a plow and you don't need the rest of these hanging out and, and, and eating meat. Why are you not raising more, more efficient food sources? The questions we ask are shaped by what we think of as normal. Yeah, and in the book I describe this incident with this uh, Japanese doctor, this Japanese family that I ate with, mm. and um, we were talking about the ethics of eating dolphin and, and mm -hmm. whale, and they got really, the doctor got really upset at me for bringing this up <laughs> because he said this is a hypocritical kind of question when you're when you in the West eat cows and pigs, what's the difference between them and and whales mm -hmm. and dolphins? And I, I was trying to be play the um, I was sitting in the middle and explaining the both perspectives to him, but he wasn't having none of it. He was drunk and he was very upset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and depending on, you know, we think, or I think, some people think there's a difference because of levels of intelligence and stuff, but they're so tricky and, and slippery that a lot of that is, is post hoc justification. Sure. Yeah, sure. yeah. Now, we've kept you a long time. Mark, is there any other burning question that you absolutely must ask well, Stephen before I he goes? I have one last question, yeah. <laughs> What about the future of diet? Is it conceivable that we'll eventually adapt genetically to our new circumstance? And, you know, how quickly can that happen? I mean, can we can we adapt to the more sedentary lifestyle that so many people are kind of forced to to live because of, you know, white collar work and, and so forth? Yeah, that's a great point. We will. If, if there's no other changes and if people continue to die from early from uh, obesity and, and diabetes, then there will be adaptation. And Jared Diamond has already made the suggestion that this has occurred with European populations, that because they had access to higher levels of calories and they had more sweet food and they had less exercise, then there was already selection taking place in Europe over the last couple of hundred years. And as a result, Europeans are less sensitive to uh, the effects of diabetes compared to Asians. Mm -hmm. So actually, it's not that Asians are particularly susceptible to diabetes, it's that Europeans are particularly less susceptible due to the natural selection that has already occurred among them. So um, something similar is taking place around the world today with the unfortunate effects of, of obesity and diabetes causing people to, to live shorter lives. So yeah, I think selection is taking place. Does it need to take place is uh, another question. I think a lot of people are going to say that I don't want to be the... the, the <laughs> I don't want to be the person culled. Yeah. <laughs> I want my genes to go on to the next generation. Yeah. And so... Yeah. I think people will try to change their uh, their habits and their foods uh, to the extent possible, and not be the uh, not allow natural selection to take place. But otherwise, I think I agree that it it, it is taking place. Mm -hmm. And there's the question there too of of how exactly natural selection works when we aren't. I mean, I I certainly agree that change is still happening in populations, but if you can manage diabetes, are people going to be deselect? Is di diabetes really going to be deselected for? Because if we can manage it, those genes aren't going to drop out of the population because people with diabetes are going to continue to reproduce and they won't disappear. So will diabetes instead simply become an endemic and naturalized part of life, for instance? I mean, different kinds of diabetes, obviously, there's, there's the very difficult to manage diabetes that does affect reproductive uh, success. But there's the sort of type 2 diabetes of old age, 
probably isn't going to have a real strong selective effect on pe- pressure, I would think. I mean, do you think that's true? Or Yeah, in the case of, um, of diabetes, evolution actually works at, at two different levels. Mm-hmm. One is the level of the genes themselves passing on to the next generation. Mm-hmm. And if people take medication, they can still reproduce. That's fine. Uh, but the second level is the, the care that grandparents invest in their mm-hmm. grandchildren. And so if grandparents end up with reduced lives, as they do in the case of diabetes and obesity, mm-hmm. then there's going to be, uh, their grandchildren are going to have a poorer chance of being successful, mm-hmm. of, of growing up and, and mm-hmm. uh, reproducing in, in their generation. Actually, I thought I thought that was a good point because when you know my my thought on that has always been well yes but you know the kinds of nuclear families we have now rely a lot less on grandparents for ad, for for actual survival you know when we're talking survival the survival rates of a child that has grandparents or does not have grandparents are probably you know, it might be a slight difference but it's going to be quite slight compared to even 300 years ago but there are societal pressures somebody who does not have parents living with them does not have parents living in their family. Uh, in their city or doesn't have living parents or who has very sick parents and therefore has to take care of them may then choose not to have a family. So the pressures then become not on survival, but on reproductive choice. People who do not have that grandparental support system may simply choose to have fewer children or no children at all sure. because the resources aren't there. Yep. So I think that, that you're right, that there's there's a pressure. It's a different kind of pressure, but it's no less of a pressure. Yeah, and the other another point too is that diabetes is part of this metabolic syndrome. So mm-hmm. it's associated with things like gout, heart disease, and right. high blood pressure, and mm-hmm. so on. So these kind of poor eating habits can, uh, or sedentary lifestyles, I should say, can really affect person's lifestyle in multiple ways and uh, mm-hmm. and harm their health. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and make make them make choices about how they do or do not have families or interact with others or whatever that do have long reaching effects. That's right. So you you know you use the 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 round number of five hundred years. What if I force you to make a really impossible prediction <laughs> and said five hundred years from now, what are people going to be saying about diet? How would you answer that? Oh, don't give him five hundred years. Do we even have a planet five hundred <laughs> uh, years from now? Yeah. Give him fifty. <laughs> well, and of course the, there are all kinds of things that you know environmental issues that play into that. What kind of an environment are we producing our food in 500 years from now? Yeah, I think uh, 500 years from now, people are going to look back at today's nutritional advice with horror. <laughs> they're going to think, whoa, they went through the dark ages. Like, look at what they were doing. They were like advising people not to eat cholesterol and salt and, and fat and all these things are 500 years from now are going to be fine, I think. Uh, once the state of the knowledge improves, people are just going to be or they're either going to laugh or cry or just be or uh, <laughs> be fascinated by the uh, arcane strolls that we had in terms of trying to control our diet. When really the the real problem was just that we weren't moving enough, and right. I think that's going to be emerging. And people will find all sorts of ways of of modifying their lifestyle so that they can eat whatever they want. And so uh, here I am in Sweden, and it turns out that the desks here are movable. You can raise these and lower oh. them. Oh. And, uh, of course they are, because the Swedes are just like that. <laughs> and by law, you're allowed to get one of these desks. And so, that, right. yeah, I think people will realize that there's ways of modifying our hab- our environments, our office environments, mm-hmm. so that we can move around more and take advantage of technology and, and knowledge so that we can uh, eat more freely. So I think that's going to be mm-hmm. the big change. So 500 years from now, there'll be a really good book for uh, an anthropologist to write. You <laughs> <laughs> start writing it now, yeah. You know. <laughs> leave leave good notes. Just leave detailed notes yeah. <laughs> in hard copy because God knows what they can read five, 50 years from now. They won't be able to read our, our digital copies. <laughs> 
Well, Stephen, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating yeah. discussion. And I really enjoyed the book. And I really appreciate this opportunity to talk to you, but in more depth. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks. And, you know, to meet you after, <laughs> as it were, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> after hearing about you from for Mark and your uh, long ago jazz playing days. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I was telling my wife about it today. <laughs> Mark, the bassist. <laughs> exactly. I hear you've continued on, uh, or you were at one point continuing, not jazz exactly, but with the tango. You have a, a, a history of tango dancing, That's right. I gather. That's right. yep. <laughs> do you still do that? I'm married now. And so Does that mean you're not allowed to dance? Because yeah, no, I should have words with your wife then. <laughs> my wife is a tango dancer too. We, we met through tango, actually. So oh, well, that was great. But uh, I guess um, tango and, and dancing in general is kind of like Lex. Do you know Lex? Um, it's a term in biology for large groups of animals that meet together in order to... Oh, yes, yes, yes. Lex, L-E-K, is it L-E-K-S? Yeah, yeah. L-E-K-S, that's right. Yeah. And so... Um, <laughs> I don't th- once you've once you've matched, you don't have any need for it anymore. <laughs> so there's there's definitely less of incentive to get out to the, the tango dances these days. But we st- we still enjoy dancing, I think. But yeah, you think you just haven't actually put that to the test? <laughs> well, I can I I shouldn't I shouldn't laugh at you because Mark and I did uh, do quite a lot of ballroom dancing, just lessons and and fun stuff when we were in university and and first together, but haven't done it in years either. <laughs> there you go. So there you go. Though I always blame it on kids because I can blame everything on kids. <laughs> Though we did get we did get the just dance for we uh, just <laughs> just this at Christmas time and now we're dance dancing again with the kids. <laughs> so there you go. You can you can play you can play video games and still. Yeah, you need to get a tango version of the just dance. <laughs> Do it in your living room. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. Tango is just another form of walking. Yes. <laughs> Great. Well, we'll let you get back to the uh, evening. I guess it is now in Sweden. Right. And good luck and have fun settling in there. And I hope you have a wonderful year there and, and more adventures to come. Is, is there a, a sequel in the works yet? Uh, in terms of the book writing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> a, a lot of different ideas, yep. Uh, and um, working them out right now at, uh, in Sweden. Great. <laughs> Great. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. All right. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. So before we go, just one more thing. We'd love to hear your reaction to this interview, and in particular, your thoughts about this idea of eating what one's ancestors ate, or of eating more traditionally. How does that sound to you? What are the traditional diets that your ancestors might have eaten? How does your eating pattern now match or differ from the way people 500 years ago in the regions you're from might have eaten? Have you tried any traditional diets or unusual foods? If you've read this book, uh, by Stephen, we'd love to hear what you think about it. Importantly, have you ever tried any insects? Would you try insects? Anyway, let us know what you think in comments on the podcast website, www.alliterative.net slash podcast, or tweet us at Avensara or at Alliterative. Or go to the Facebook page, www.facebook.com slash alliterativeendlessnot, all one word, and leave us a comment there. We'd love to hear from you and maybe feature some of your stories on the next podcast. For more information on this podcast, check out the website www.alliterative.net, where you can find links to the videos, blog posts, sources, and credits. We've also got all the ways you can follow us. Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, G+, a mailing list, and Instagram. 
And please check out our Patreon, where you can pledge to support this show and our video project. You can go directly to the videos at youtube.com slash alliterative. Our email is on the website, but the easiest way to get in touch with us is on Twitter. I'm at Avensara, A-V-E-N-S-A-R-A-H. And I'm at alliterative. To keep up with the podcast, subscribe on iTunes or to the feed on the website. And please review it on iTunes if you can and if you've enjoyed it. It helps us a lot. We'll be back soon with more musings about the connections around us. Thanks for listening. Bye.